The Snellen chart features 11 lines of progressively smaller letters. And not just any letters. The Snellen chart uses just nine. C, D, E, F, L, O, P, T, and Z. They're somewhat clunky appearance, and their spacing were all carefully designed. continuing a series called Vision 2020, uh, where we're really setting up the spring, uh, the spring semester of different things like Rooted, uh, which you just saw Kevin give a testimony of, uh, but also uh, financial peace and embracing grace, embrace grace, and uh, as well as this will be our first semester where we open it up to the congregation for uh, Unique, which is a uh, 12-week uh, course. Uh, that's a tool that takes you through your personal life calling. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more today. Uh, that's going to take place on Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings. Uh, there will be childcare available for that. Uh, and we just want to invite you to, to come and be a part of something that really had a huge impact in my life. So today's message is really uh, in promotion of that. Uh, Parker Palmer in his book, Let Your Life Speak, he makes the statement as he recounts evaluating his life midlife, kind of having this midlife crisis, he realized that he was doing an incredibly uh, noble job of living someone else's life. Uh, and those words really ought to haunt many of us because it's exactly how we feel at times where we go through this life and we have this, sen this sense deep inside of us that we have, we're doing something or we are something that someone else wanted us to be. Uh, or or we, we live through this life uh, taking on jobs and being someone that we're not. And, and who we become and who, God who we have become and who God designed us to be are two different people. Uh, with all the best intentions in the world, we nobly become someone that we're not. There's a Professor Howard Hendricks. He has done more for Christian education than just about any person over the past 100 years. And uh, every time he would teach his class, uh, he would tell his students, he would, he would go to the blackboard and he would uh, draw a funnel on the blackboard. And then... With a piece of chalk on the funnel, he would, he would mark X's all at the top of the funnel. And he would say to his students, he would say, these X's represent everything in your life that you can do. And then at the very bottom of it, he would put a large X at the bottom of the funnel. And it would say, this is the one thing that you must do. And he would let that sink in for a moment with his students, and then he would proceed with the lesson. He, he would tell them that most opportunities that you get in this life are often distractions in disguise, that, that they're good things, they're things that you can do, and the more success you have in this life, the more can-dos there are to do. He says, but if you're not careful, you'll spend your entire life doing the things that you can do and never find the one thing you must do. 
And that's really the question for all of us this morning is what is the one thing that we must do? This is a question that really burns within us, I think, at a deep level. That there's something in us that that we cannot deny, that, that there's something that if we were to do it, it brings life to us. There's something that lives in us that we have to let out. Maybe the question for you is, have you known this? Have you experienced this? But has it been squelched by discouragement and disappointment? Maybe it's been squelched by the demands of, of life. Maybe you're afraid of naming it, right? And you're afraid that if you name it, then you're going to have to live it out. So you quietly push it aside for respectable reasons. Or maybe you never knew it, but you've always wanted to know there's got to be something more to this life. I've got to have been created to do something beyond what I'm currently doing. Today, I want to invite us back into the journey with the prophet Jeremiah that we started last week because he struggled with his identity too. And as we look at his struggle, what we'll find is we'll find insights to recover our own calling that God's placed on our life. Last week we saw that we are more unique than we believe that we are, than we think that we are because God has created all of us with a unique design, a unique destiny, And in Jeremiah 20, we catch up with the prophet Jeremiah in a crisis of calling and conviction. He's done his best to live out his one-of-a-kind divine destiny, yet he's finding himself completely ridiculed and rejected, and there's this resistance towards him from his community, and he's literally been placed in stocks at the city gates because the message that he's bringing Right? They put him in socks because the message he's bringing threatens the status quo. He's calling for a change and he's calling for reform in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of hypocrisy, and he's calling on Israel to return back to God. And the rejection and the resistance has taken its toll on him. So much so that Jeremiah is actually ready to give up on his calling and ready to give up on God, ready to give up even on his life. He's angry at God for what his life has become. He feels his life doesn't look very unique. Instead, he's in full-fledged identity crisis. But it's in this crisis that Jeremiah recovers a few truths about his identity because he learns to embrace them instead of ignore them. And what happens is it begins to make all of the difference in who he becomes. And I want you to hear his struggle in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. He says, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip up 
saying, perhaps he will be deceived, then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. So the first point I want us to see this morning is calling is is what you can't help but do. In verses 7 through 10, these These verses invite us into Jeremiah's struggle. We can see it, right? His honest, real, raw emotions are not hidden in his conversations with God. Maybe you've experienced that in your life where you're going through a season or you're going through a struggle where you're, you're, honestly, you're just angry at God. You don't understand it and, and your emotions are raw and they're real. And in some ways, Jeremiah gives us permission to be that way. He gives us permission to be able to have candid conversations with our God because our God already knows our hearts. He's ready to give up and go on with his life without God. He's ready to abandon his call. And in verse 9, Jeremiah gives gives words to what those of us who have lived with a strong sense of calling know deep down to be true. But there are times when we would, quite honestly, we would like to not embrace the calling that God has placed in our lives. Like we just can't do it anymore. Our problem is, is that we cannot not do it. That there's something inside of us, something that that burns like fire in our bones that has to come out of us because on some days, the only thing that's worse than living that call out is not living that call out. It's a challenging truth, but just because we are called to do something doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. In fact, quite the opposite. Oftentimes, it means it will be difficult. Calling isn't an exemption from pain or suffering or despair or depression. Living out your calling in your life doesn't mean that, that every day is a good day, that every day you wake up feeling it. You don't. But because many people ignore this truth, we don't embrace the place of God's calling grace. When times get tough, and things go wrong, what often happens is most people assume that there must be something wrong in their calling. And so what happens is they go searching for a clearer path, an easier path, a path that's a lesser life. But a true sense of calling really won't ever let us do that because even if we find something that is easier, we will never be satisfied by that thing. There's something worse than suffering in life, and that's not having something in this life worth suffering for. And the question is, have you identified anything in your life that is worth suffering for? Have you examined your your passions and your abilities and your ideal context to name the one thing that you would do no matter what? Have you ever pressed through the pain to embrace your purpose? Here we see Jeremiah's painful embrace of God's grace. Speaking God's word for Jeremiah is no longer something he merely can do. It's the one thing that he must do. The problem is, is oftentimes we don't want to experience the pain. 
We don't like pain, right? And I know this because I can go to CVS and I can buy a large bottle of Advil, right? This alleviates pain. You get a headache, you go get some Tylenol, you twist your ankle, you get some Advil. And if I go to Costco, I can even get a larger thing of Advil. For me personally, uh, I've, I've crossed the threshold of my 40s. And, uh, and so to me, I don't get headaches very often. Uh, what I do get a lot is heartburn. This is a part of the fall uh, that that was bestowed upon us, I'm convinced of, but I, I eat Tums a lot. I probably have a problem. I don't know, ulcer, I don't know. But the, there is something in our life where we will do whatever we can to alleviate the pain. And honestly, these are acceptable ways to alleviate our pain. There are other ways in which we numb our pain that aren't as acceptable. But by and large, all of us are looking for easy ways to get rid of pain in our lives. We're thankful for the relief that these medicines bring. But I wonder if we could ponder for a second this morning that some of our efforts to get rid of pain may also be robbing us of something very valuable. Our passion. It's impossible to talk about calling and purpose and not talk about passion. And it's impossible to talk about passion and not talk about pain. Anybody that, that has ever been married knows that the root word of passion means pain. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's making sense to you now that that anytime you have passion, there is pain in the midst of that. And it's no coincidence that our culture that is so addicted to numbing its pain also numbs its passion and its purpose. Passion is a condition that becomes contagious because it withstands the test of pain. And it's in our pain that our passions are formed. Pain isn't the opposite of calling. You could say it like this. It is the incubation, that pain is the incubation in which our calling begins to develop and grow. Which leads me to the second point, and I only have two this morning, so you're lucky. Convictions are what you can't do without. Jeremiah goes on in verse 11, he says, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. His tune is starting to change. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, who you who examine the righteous and probe the heart of mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. I love this ending of, of this prayer where he says, let me see your vengeance on them. Because when I think of it, when I think of the people who ridicule, reject, push against people who I thought were friends but, but stab you in the back, like those kinds of people. Those, that prayer is not usually, let me see your vengeance, but it's usually, God, just give me a pass on vengeance today. Like, let, just give me a free pass, and it's like God's holding you back, but you're like, like let me at him. In our humanity, we want vengeance 
And Jeremiah says, no. He says, let me see your vengeance on them, which I think is funny too, because he's like, if I can't have vengeance, at least let me see them suffer just a little bit. Right, and that's his humanness. It's, it's a reminder to us that he is not unlike us. That there's something about the humanity in this statement where he's like, I trust you in all of this. I'm gonna let you have your vengeance in this situation and I'm just gonna take a step back and trust you. See, Jeremiah's pain isn't limited to the physical pain of his circumstances, even though as as much as that may have deeply pained him, the reality is is he hurts not just in his body, but he hurts in his soul. He's he's hurting, his, his heart aches at the hypocrisy of these people. He he longs for acceptance inside his community. He wants people to like him. He desperately desires for the truth to be revealed. And these are the deep convictions that we see emerge in these words of verses 11 and 12. It might have been easier for Jeremiah to cater to the expectations of the world around him, honestly. Jeremiah could have just said, you know what, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and we're all going to be friends. We're all going to hang out together. But the problem was is that Jeremiah understood that he would never compromise or believe that true friendship would come from anything other than authenticity. He knew he couldn't just imagine true friendship without being real. He would never be at home in a world that valued the illusion of truth over the actual pursuit of truth. He refused to settle for the status quo if the status quo was ultimately leading leading to a dead end. These deep convictions motivated him at the core of who he was. He couldn't imagine doing life without them because to settle for that kind of life would be no life at all. To settle settle for a life without convictions isn't really living anyways. Ultimately, Jeremiah could only look to God to validate his core convictions. He had to place his hope in him. He had to trust that that even in the midst of fulfilling the calling that God had placed on his life to speak the truth, that God was going to take care of his community and that he was going to bring people around him. Rather than compromise his convictions, Jeremiah trusted God to confirm them. And in the end, in the end of this, his core conviction showed Israel another way to live. Not everyone responded to them, but a few did. And when it was all said and done, Jeremiah's commitment to these core conviction left a lasting legacy for Israel. Kelly and I uh, just got back from uh, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And uh, we had the privilege, just last night actually, it was a real quick trip uh, because uh, we had a council member, Slade Smith, who's Slade and Catherine were a part of our church for uh, quite a few years while he was stationed here. And um, he got reassigned to the Pentagon and was there for a few years. And then uh, his next assignment was uh, executive command services at the White House. And, and so he works, uh, I don't know how closely, but really 
pretty close uh, to the right people uh, that got us into the White House, uh, into the West Wing of the White House. Anybody can go into the East Wing. That's, that's for anybody. Uh, and it sounds like I'm bragging that I got to go to the West Wing. I, I am. That is exactly what I'm doing here. This is not a humble brag. This is an out there, like, I got to do this. Uh, I almost didn't get to do it, and this is the humbling part, because there was, a, there was a bunch of security checks that we had to fill out before we ever got there months ago. And, and somehow, for the East Wing tour, I got everything right, but on the West Wing tour, I messed up our birth dates, mine and Kelly's birth dates. And so we got to the first uh, Secret Service uh, booth, and they're like, uh, it looks like Kelly was born in 1995, and, uh, and your birthday is April 7th, 1977, and my birthday is actually April 27th. And so somehow, I don't know what happened, but the, the numbers got all messed up, and it was not looking like we were going to be able to go in. Um, Slade, again, I don't know like, all about what he does, uh, but I know enough now to know that even when your birthdays are wrong, he can call the right people who know the right people to get you in, uh, which was absolutely amazing. So we got to go in, and uh, we got to see the Oval Office. There's, you don't get to walk into the Oval Office. I'm just I'm letting you, you guys who won't ever get to do this know. <laughs> um, but they have, a, they have a rope across the door. You get to stick your head in. And here's what you can do, I know for sure, is you can step your foot into the Oval Office and not get shot. Because um, I'm standing here and we did it. Um, but you get to see some other rooms in the, in the West Wing and all of that. The reason why I'm telling you this story is because there's there just something about being in that place and and just a recognition that we live uh, in a culture and in a time, and I'm not getting political on you, although uh, it's funny it, it's, it's funny what going into the West Wing will do. I'm like, maybe I should run for president. I, I'm like, see, well, anyways. Uh, so so uh, I walked away from there really kind of heavy with this uh, sense that, we, we live, and this isn't going to be a shock to anybody, but we live in a, in a culture right now where, where the convictions of Scripture, and I'm not talking about parties or, or politics or policies even necessarily, as much as I am saying that the, the moral convictions of Scripture, and we have to start there, that we actually believe that the, the Word of God is a guiding book for our lives, that we believe that it is the thing that, uh, that prompts us in our decision-making, and it prompts us to do things. So if we start there, then, then we recognize that we are constantly in our culture having the message of Christ and the principles of Scripture being pressed against. Not by one party or the other, I'm just saying in general, just being pressed against. And, and here's where the danger lies if, and where we learn the lesson from Jeremiah in this world that we live in now is that Jeremiah held true to the convictions even if it meant the people around him rejected him. And I wonder how many of us would be willing to, to compromise our convictions of the word of God so as to not offend, so as to have people like us. 
It's a tricky place because we want to be loving. We want to be gracious towards people who maybe think differently, who believe differently than us. But I think it's okay to love people who think differently, believe differently, and hold true to the convictions of God's word. Like Jeremiah, he he believed that God would take care of the community around him, that he would handle all of those things. But the one thing he must do was hold to his convictions and to speak the truth of God to the people. If calling is about what you can't help but do, then your convictions are the things you can't do without. Calling answers the the what question of our lives. What am I called to do? Convictions, which could also be called values, answer the why question of our lives. Why am I called to do it? Your calling and your convictions They name the essence of your unique identity. And it's without those things that life is numb and we exist, but we don't really live. I want to end with with a story of a guy named, uh, a little boy named Lynn Howe. I I don't know if that's really how you say his last name, uh, but spelled H-A-O. So if anybody's Chinese and wants to correct me, feel free. But for my purposes today, he will be called Lin Hao. Uh, In 2008, May 12th, there was uh, what was called the Great Sichuan Earthquake. It measured 8.0 on the Richter scale, and it rocked the country of China. It devastated houses and buildings, and it left a trail of casualties in its wake. This earthquake caused the largest number of geohazards, geohazards ever recorded, including... 200,000 landslides and more than 800 quake lakes that was distributed over an area the size of Virginia. Immense havoc was wreaked by this earthquake. But there was a boy named Lin Howe. Lin was nine years old. He's in the second grade. And he was walking down the hallways of his school when the earthquake struck and the walls came collapsing in on him and his classmates. And right away, he was knocked out. He was knocked unconscious by the falling, falling walls, but Lin Howe eventually gained consciousness and he squirmed his little body out of the rubble and outside into some freedom. But once he made his way out, Lin Howe went back into the rubble and he rescued two of his friends by pulling them to safety. As the story of, of Lin Howe started to be told by uh, other people, reporters, got a hold of this and they gathered around him to ask him a few questions. One of the reporters asked him a question. They said, why did you go back into the rubble? And his response was perfect. He says, well, I, sir, am the hall monitor. That is my job. What a perfect answer. He knew exactly what his job was and even going back in the midst of the rubble, he did it. Each of us has something that we must do. And we could choose to live our lives outside of the rubble, but when we embrace our calling, we choose to go back into it. We risk pain. We risk rejection. 
risk being caught in the aftershocks of a broken world, but we do this because it's part of who we are. We are motivated by our convictions and calling. We step into a broken world, and through the power of God, we make it beautiful again. We are Christians. We are to be Christ-like. We are to be followers of Christ. And it is through our convictions of who Jesus is and the word that he has given us that we live this life out. We do not compromise as Christians the conviction of God's word. I'm inviting us to find our our calling and, and begin to commit to it, to identify our core convictions. For most of us, we will compromise our the convictions of God's word because we don't know what the what God's word has to say about it. We assume that people are smarter than us. People will tell us what to believe or what to think. People will give us our convictions, and it's why they are so shallow. Inviting us to refuse to compromise the deep gospel convictions of our lives and instead trust God to validate them. If you don't know what this is in your life, I would invite you to be a part of the tool that we use to name and know what it is that God has called you to do who he's called you to be, and how he's called you to live that out in this life. It's one of the tools that impacted me at a great level because I am fulfilling the thing that I must do, not just doing a bunch of things that I can do. And I wonder what it is that you must do. I know one thing, I know, that, I know this, that at a basic level, we all must adhere to the conviction of Scripture in this life and in this world. That we must do. But I think there's more that God wants to do in your life. And I want to help you discover that. Let's pray.